This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, they're off. MPs are leaving Westminster, off in search of re-election. Well, not all of them. We'll speak to three who are standing down in this week's episode. The mood amongst journalists heading out across the country. A mixture of excitement and despair, I think it has to be said. Just to let you know, we're going to be doing two episodes of the Red Box podcast throughout the election campaign to try and cover as many issues and parts of the country as we possibly can. If you've got any questions or issues you think we should be looking at, email redbox at thetimes.co.uk and we'll try to cover them in the coming episodes. But there is no mistake, this election, this Christmas general election, is just the latest in a long list of huge democratic events. The people of Scotland have spoken, and it is a clear result. And I will now form a majority Conservative government. The British people have voted to leave the European Union, and their will must be respected. We agreed that the government should call a general election. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I say to all the doubters, dude! Happy Christmas election, Britain! So the campaign is underway. Parliament is dissolved. MPs returning to their seats, no longer MPs anymore. They just had one last job before they left Westminster, electing a new Commons Speaker. Ken Clark, the father of the House, an MP for four decades, was supposed to be on this podcast, but his office couldn't find him. Uh, classic Ken, I think it's fair to say. Here he is running the show as MPs elected the new Speaker. Order, order. This is the result of the fourth and final ballot. Yeah. 540 ballots were cast. There are some other pressing engagements to take people away. So the new speaker is Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the MP for Chorley, no relation. He ended up emerging victorious in the fourth round of voting, beating fellow Labour MP Chris Bryant. And if you want to know what makes Lindsay Hoyle tick, we spoke to him earlier this year about everything from Donald Trump to terror attacks and why Parliament needs a cat. 
And this mouse was walking down the corridor, little bit of a swag, and off it went, and it <laughs> shot down. And I'm still of the opinion, it's time we got some parliamentary cats. If they're good enough for Downing Street, they're good enough You'd for You'd like to get a cat? I'd like more than one. You can hear that full episode. Just search for Why Parliament Needs a Cat wherever you listen to your podcast. But in this episode, I'm going to speak to some MPs who aren't standing for election this time. Later, I speak to David Liddington, Theresa May's former deputy during the latter half of her premiership, plus Vince Cable, the former Lib Dem leader, both coming up. But first, Labour MP Gloria De Piero, and I began by asking her why she was standing down. I was never one of those people that came in and thought, I'm going to be carried out of that place in a box. So I always thought, actually, 10 years would probably be about the right time, and I think I've done about nine and a half. And the reason why I thought that was... The way I do jobs is, if you can give it 100%, then that's how you should do every job, and particularly the most honourable job there is that you can do. And I thought, God, can I keep it up at this pace? Sacrificing your family time, your weekends, all for genuine right causes, but I thought, I don't know if I can give it 100%. And even if I can only give it 95, that's not fair on my constituents. You know, there's been a lot of talk about pressure that MPs are under, the abuse, um, the, the constant sort of mm. demands, and also Brexit. What is it on the sort of list of reasons? Well, this was my plan anyway. Yeah, okay. I never intended to stay here uh, forever. Um, but I can't deny that. I mean, Brexit, the last... I mean, and remember, this was followed on from a year of civil war in the Labour Party. 2016, 2015 onwards. And then after that, civil war sort of resolved itself. Then we went into a Brexit civil war. So no one can deny that, I mean, the impasse and the lack of a willingness to compromise has uh, not been difficult. But I'll tell you something. I was chatting to Ken Clark and Vince Cable. And Ken Clark, who have both been here longer than me, and Ken Clark said to me, you think the country's divided now? You should have been here during the miners' strike. That's the country divided. And that really helped me to get a historical perspective on it. And Vince Cable had to take no pleasure in saying it, but um, he said when they joined the coalition, he would be spat at on the streets. So it's always good to, you know, things seem black now, and you think that you're in the worst possible, it can't ever possibly be any worse than this. But actually, historical perspectives from colleagues, so he, it has. It's quite often good. Oh, you get through it. Uh, given that you were a political journalist before, mm. how different has the job been from what you thought it would be? I think I know what the job involves. I probably mm. almost have no idea. I was a Labour Party person before I was a journalist, so yeah. I had to sort of un-be a Labour Party person in order to be a journalist, but I was one of those weird people that joins um, a political party when they're a teenager. Um, so the Labour Party has always been in my heart and if anybody ever said I would be able to be a Labour MP at some point in my life I'd have thought no way that's like that's a dream that I can't even imagine realising but I have realised it I wouldn't not have done this job for the entire world it's taught me so much it's changed my politics and what's the contrast between journalism and this this is a better way to find out about Britain which surprised me because I wanted to be a journalist because you think you can find out what's really going on in the country Absolutely not. This is the only way. There's no better way than finding out what really is going on in the country than this. And there is that thing of people accusing politicians of being out of touch, and yet they're the ones who spend their Fridays and Saturdays sitting in village halls oh, and supermarket so centres speaking to constituents. They know more than anything what's I going on. I said to so many people in London, Brexit's going to... You know, I've campaigned to remain. I said to so many people in London, 
we're going to be leaving the European Union. And they went, no, we're not. No, we're not. I don't know anybody who's going to vote leave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. And in that sense, understanding the community where I live has, has changed my politics, actually. Somebody had said to me at 30, you'll be saying, going around like studios saying respect the result. I'd have said, you were bananas. But actually, I've chosen to do what, in my view, is the right thing and, and learn from my community. And um, that's changed me. And I'm ever grateful for the change in my outlook that they have given me. And so what's your plan next? Don't know. Got any other jobs? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, you know, who knows? Of course I've got to get a job, because that's the other thing. Lots of people think that we've sort of, sort of come in from Mars, I don't know, like, live in big houses. None of that's true. I've got no family money. I have to get a job, just like anybody else who uh, chooses to resign from their job. And presumably your plan was to thinking it might have been 2022 and not just before Christmas. Well, I announced in July because I could see it was yeah. getting a little uh, shaky. And I announced in July because I was really keen that my members had a full selection. Yeah. Because I know a lot of members are now, you know, not having enough choice on their candidates. So that is why as soon as I could see the ground was unstable, I owed it to my members to let them choose their successor. And what about other people coming into politics? Are you concerned about all the talk about abuse and intimidation and all that? Is that putting people off? Well, I hope not, because every job has pressures, strains, I think the social media company should do far more to root out its really hateful speech. Um, but cost benefits, I have only grown from doing this. And just finally, what's the weirdest thing about being an MP? In around the House of Commons. I mean, look at where we are. <laughs> the whole thing is weird, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, the way you speak to each other in that chamber. I mean, obviously you have normal conversations in the tea room and, um, I don't know, Chris Bryant is like Chris Bryant and, I'll, and then I go in there and is the member for the Ronda. I mean, all of it's a bit weird, isn't it? Is it is all a bit weird. The whole place is a bit weird. Almost everyone who works in Parliament at all, but also recently would agree that Parliament has got very weird indeed. So next up, Sir David Liddington. Former Tory cabinet minister, served on the front bench for two decades in one form or another. He began by explaining how his decision to stand down had been playing on his mind for a while. I've done more than a quarter of a century and you've got to leave at some stage. And I'd have been up to fight this election and serve a bit longer. It was the thought of making that mental, psychological commitment to possibly a full five-year parliament that was too much... The other things I want to do with my life, well, I've still got health and I'm compos mentis and the energy to do do those things. And also, you know, I think my, my family deserve a bit of payback for their patience over the years. So it's been very emotional. It's, I mean, it's something I've been talking about with my wife for a while because you get to that stage in, you know, in your 60s where you start to think, look, you realise there's only a finite number of years that you've got particularly good health and you don't know how long or short that period's going to be uh, and then I've had to accelerate that decision a lot in the, 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 the last few days but the principle was always the same would I or would I not feel comfortable committing myself wholeheartedly to a full five-year parliament if that's what it turned out to be and if the answer's no to that I think you owe it to your constituents and to the House to say, OK, time for somebody else to take up the banner. Did it make a difference that you felt you couldn't commit wholeheartedly to five years of a Boris Johnson government? Because the, the shift in the Tory party has been away from your politics. Yeah, I mean, it, no, that, I mean, I, I, it has been a shift. Um, uh, but 
I think that if I look back at my time in the Conservative Party, I've been a member for well over 40 years and I've seen eight different leaders from Margaret Thatcher to Boris Johnson. I've been in Parliament under all of them from John Major onwards. Uh, and I've had points where I've agreed and where I've disagreed. And what, what I have disliked about the way politics has shifted in recent years, I'm afraid the Brexit argument has to some extent intensified this, is that there's a soundness of bitterness that's crept into political discourse magnified through social media. And what social media makes possible is um, the green ink letter writers identify each other instead of writing letters in, in lonely attics. Yeah, they, they're now communicating on social media. They're communicating on social media uh, and therefore you get in, if, in effect the, 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 the creation of a virtual mob. So it's like going back to the 18th century, you know, when the mob in London was a really big influence in, in, in politics and now that's online and women MPs of all political parties have had it particularly hard. There's some vicious misogynistic stuff out there. And you came across that particularly when you were leader of the House? When I was leader of the House of Commons, when you have to act as sort of an advocate for the House as a whole, and so part of that job is about being consensual and talking to people in other parties. Um, and in the, the aftermath of Joe Cox's murder, a lot of women MPs suddenly started to uh, unburden themselves and talk about what they'd been putting up with. And I saw anti-Semitic online posts, I saw misogynistic, racist stuff. Uh, it was told about stalkers, about anonymous phone calls, messages saying, we know where your children go to school, or we know where you live. I mean, this usually just the right side of the criminal law, but intimidatory. Nobody comes into politics, but he comes into politics, as I find, frankly, for, for, for anything other than to try to make life better for the people who elect us. Now, we argue passionately about what that means and, and you know, strong disagreements on policy and values and principles. But actually, you can have a fierce political debate while still respecting the integrity of your opponent. I think as a country, we need to rediscover that principle. Otherwise, our, our, our politics is going, going to be further damaged. And also, I think that there's a, a lesson and a responsibility for edges and for the big uh, internet service providers as well. I really do have to question whether it is right for people to be allowed to make abusive comments under the cloak of anonymity. Because in my experience, People will put things online in that form, which they would never say to your face, or they would never put in a letter which they signed and then had to put a stamp on. When you were in government, which obviously wasn't that long ago, was that something the government would ever consider looking at, banning anonymous um, posts? I, it's not something that I recall as looking at in that particular um, way. And, and, and I'm not going to hide the fact that... that um, I don't see a magic wand. There's, there's, you know, if, if you start passing a law to restrict what people can say online, there's first of all an issue of enforceability because if the sites or the companies or the poster themselves are based in another country, your, your jurisdiction is very limited, which is why I think that the, 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 the responsibility in the first place lies with the internet service companies to actually think about their own code. They all have codes. Now, are they going too far in tolerating some of this comedy? It's not an easy challenge to surmount, but I worry that if we as a society don't find a way to do that, then we'll turn many good people off politics and the 
the nature of political debate will be debased further. Would you advise, if you, I can't remember how many children you've got. Four. If one of them came to you and said, I was thinking of becoming an MP, <laughs> what would you say? I, well, I think, first of all, having a father as an MP is probably inoculated all four <laughs> of my sons uh, against <laughs> doing this. I, I'd say what I'd say to any young man or woman who asks me about this, which is, yes, it is worthwhile, you can make a difference to the lives of people for the better, but think very carefully. You will need the skin of a rhinoceros and don't put all your hopes of happiness in politics. You know, get a career started, sort you know, your relationships out because politics involves a lot of luck. I've known brilliant people in both Labour and Conservative parties who have lost seats which they weren't expected to lose, or just failed to get selected for a winnable constituency. And that's a loss to Parliament, but that's the luck of the draw. And what about if you had a time machine, knowing what you know now about what the job involves? Mm. Would you have done it? It's very difficult to sort of think yourself back into, into that position of sort of naivety. <laughs> but probably yes, but I think, I, uh, being straight, I'd be more wary, uh, just as I am... More where I hesitate slightly before giving advice to younger people to get involved. And I, I wouldn't have said 20, 25, even 10 years ago, look, be aware that the levels of abuse that you will be exposed to and the levels of scrutiny there will be of your private life, your family and so on. In a way, I would warn people about now. Let's quickly look, and it's, it's obviously been quite a long career, so it's difficult to cover it all. What's been the best? Because you've been on the front bench... I did 20 years on the front 20 bench. 20 out of the 25. Yeah. yeah. What was the best job that you had? The most enjoyable, some of the things I did as Europe Minister, simply because you got the opportunity to go to places, you know, the South Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, I would probably never have got round to, to visiting otherwise. And because I got to represent my country at these international events, I, I it always stick in my mind the very first time... I went into a Council of Ministers meeting in Brussels and I see the, the nameplate to United Kingdom and it hits you. That's me having the responsibility of trying to speak for the country. And as Theresa's deputy, I mean, you know, not many people do PMQs. I mean, I, the first time I did it for I, I remember sitting down afterwards and the two thoughts went through my head simultaneously. It was, um, one, not many people have done that and at the same time, Oh my goodness, she has to do it every week. <laughs> so being at the heart of government there in the cabinet office, trying to chairing cabinet committees, trying to broker deals between different ministers when they're in disagreement. And um, what was the worst bit? What's been the worst part of the last 25 mm. years? The worst bit, one is uh, the aftermath of the EU referendum in 2016 where, you know, having been, uh, you know, a staunch Remain supporter, I was obviously gutted by the result. And my duty was on the Friday morning to get up and get a plane at eight o'clock to go to Luxembourg to explain to the assembled foreign ministers of the other 27 EU countries what had happened. Um, you know, and as I took off, David Cameron was in Downing Street resigning. So that was um, not my favourite gig. Um, the other incident was uh, when I was leader and we had the terrorist attack on Westminster Bridge yeah. and Parliament where PC Palmer lost his life. And I was 
in the chamber and with the uh, deputy speaker, Lindsay Hall, you know, we had to sort of take charge of what was going on. So we were in a lockdown then. And that was just a horrible day um, because you knew imperfectly what was going on outside. You know what was going on outside was horrible. You didn't know all the detail. And living through that was not, was, was, uh, was not pleasant. And so looking forward, from the moment yeah. someone has answered they're standing down, yeah. they've become human beings again and people start being nice about you from across. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You're, not in a, you're not a politician yeah. anymore, you're, huma, you're a human being. Yes. Yes. It's like you've got the privilege of... Um, uh, attending your own um, funeral oration other than in a coffin, you know. It's, it's the, what I do now, first of all, just take stock. The advice everybody else has given me, you know, William Hay, David Willits, my old colleagues and friends who've gone outside, have said, look, there's a great life the other side of the river, but don't rush for the first thing. There's a mix of things. And, you know, my, my long-suffering wife um, probably deserves a bit more of my time. I'd like to go to some of those... European capital cities and do the tourism properly and not just be an expert in airports, motorway approach roads and foreign ministry buildings. <laughs> and a, a return to University Challenge? The only, <laughs> Ooh, the only person to, are you the only person to have won University Challenge twice? Uh, I think so. I mean, we, you know, we won it as students back in the 70s and, and then for the 40th anniversary of the show in 2002, they got together as many previous winning teams as they could find who were both alive and combos mentis and, and ran a the tournament then and we won that and that was that was fun i mean the 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 bit my children enjoyed most were the clips from the student show and they fell about when they saw the length of my hair point. <laughs> just funny just i was just conscious you said you'd been an mp under seven different tory leaders yeah i think who was the best and who was the worst <laughs> that that's an unfair question they they all had their they all had their strengths you know i i think that uh, you know there's different ways of, of, of looking at it. You've got to look at the challenges they faced at the time. But I think, I mean, I have a special sort of spot for William Hager, remains a good friend, because when I was his PPS and there was a couple of years, I shared an office with George Osborne and uh, uh, Sebastian Coe, and we were all working in the Hague team at a time when we'd gone into opposition after 18 years in government. The party was in a heap of rubble. 11 MPs on the Tory side had ever been in opposition before. Ken, was the young, Ken Clark was the youngest of those. And actually, it's William's humour working with him. His ability to keep your spirits up with laughter was, uh, was, was, was inspiring at the time. But, you know, I think back, you know, Theresa, I've never, I don't think I've known anybody who has had such a devoted commitment to public service and that old-fashioned, decent ethic. But probably fewer jokes. Yeah, fewer jokes. I don't think she's she the first to admit fewer jokes, but I, I don't know, there were occasions. Theresa May not up for the bants. You do surprise me. In a moment, we'll speak to Sir Vince Cable about why he's standing down, choosing to leave Parliament this time, rather than uh, letting voters do the hard work for him. If all this election excitement isn't enough, join us at This Is Not A Normal Quiz, a special political quiz covering the events of this year. It's on Monday, December the 2nd at the News Building in London Bridge. Time subscribers go to mytimesplus.co.uk for tickets. We'll be back after this short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box podcast, in which we chat to three MPs who are standing down at this election. Up next, Sir Vince Cable, who at least chose this time to leave on his own terms. Well, it feels much better than it did four years ago, <laughs> I have to tell you. Yeah, it's, it's sort of bittersweet. Genuinely, I don't just mean this as pious language. I think this is an honour to be here. So, but, so I'm, I'm missing that. I'm missing the, being at the middle of the action. But... Uh, on the other hand, relieved, and there are quite a lot of things I want to do uh, with my life. My bucket list is quite long. <laughs> what was behind your reason for standing down? I thought about it a few months ago, actually. I said, do I really want to sign up for another five years? I, I feel I've done what I can usefully do here. I feel, you know, we've got to a good place. My party's recovered from almost being wiped out. My, I've left my constituency in a good shape. Pretty certain that Lib Dem will take over the seat. And how's the role of being an MP changed since you were first elected to now? There's been a lot of talk about the increased pressure and abuse and intimidation, that sort of thing. Well, on that particular dimension, I haven't felt it, actually. I mean, I don't want to minimise the problem. I mean, I know there are some women who've had a terrible time, and I feel for them, and it's outrageous. But I haven't personally, despite being the leader of Remain Party, and which is pretty controversial, I've never... I never encountered very much unpleasantness in so this you, Parliament. I, I did it when I first got elected, actually. Oh. You know, it... it you know, people ringing in the middle of the night just to disturb your sleep. We had excrement through the door, a lot of unpleasantness. And certainly during the coalition, it got very unpleasant at times. You know, people spitting in the streets, this kind of thing. No, I, I think in general, I've found my interaction with not just my own constituents, but more generally very positive. People, you know, come up to you all the time, usually in a very positive way. And whether it's selfies or just wanting to pass on some thought. Uh, very, very occasionally you encounter unpleasantness. And I have to say, personally, and I'm not speaking for other MPs, that I've found less unpleasantness in the last couple of years than I did earlier. And what about the sort of the state that 
Parliament's sitting, looking over towards the Parliament building now. I mean, it's, it's literally being held up by scaffolding, so physically it's not in a great state. But what about this? Is politics working at the no, moment? No, it's not. It's not working. I mean, it's, um, you know, the question is how deep you want to go into the nature of the problem. And I say a lot of it has to do with the very flawed voting system. It's partly due to the challenge to representative democracy that the referendum created and the narrow results and so on. Uh, it, I think it's a mixture of those things and coupled with this, you know, we're no longer in an age of deference. You know, MPs um, are judged by what they do and what they say rather than uh, just regarded with great respect for the sake of it. You know, and I have a lot of international contacts because of the work I've done in the past. And whenever I meet Americans, Australians, Indians, people from Africa, they're absolutely puzzled and but feel rather sorry for Britain that somehow or other we've fallen down somehow. All the things that people thought were good about Britain, like political stability and resolving disputes in a civilised way, all these things seem to have gone by the board. Is that fixable, do you think? Is this, is this a general election no, which is I, going to make everything I'd go back to normal? I'd be amazed if it does yeah. fix it. I'd be amazed if it does. I mean, anything is possible. But if you look at the two scenarios, which are most likely, if Johnson gets back with a working majority, um, that doesn't fix it because getting Brexit done doesn't get Brexit done. We're then into the next stage of, you know, potentially bitter, divisive, uncertain outcomes with trade negotiations. And on the other hand, um, remain win a majority, but, you know, we, we have no, at this stage anyway, um, that doesn't resolve the issue because, you know, we've then got to go back to the country, have a referendum, try and resolve the Brexit issue that way. So either of the outcomes is not going to be clean and definitive. So you talked about your, your bucket list. What, what is it that you're looking forward to doing once you're, you're out of this well, building? I'm already working on a book. It's about leading political figures who made a big contribution to the way we do economics. Okay. So, so everything from Mrs. Thatcher to Deng Xiaoping, uh, going back in time to Roosevelt, Peel. So yeah. Not about Adam Smith and Keynes but about the politicians who actually translated their ideas into practice. And ballroom dancing? Yeah, I've kept up my weekly lesson throughout this period in Parliament. I did it, kept it going during the coalition actually, but I'm now wanting to go into some competitions, which I started doing in my sabbatical year, and take it more seriously. And I've got a superb teacher partner, so um, she's encouraging me to invest more time in and I know you did the Christmas Strictly yeah, special yeah. ones before. Are you, because you're already too good, are you basically banned, too good, are you banned from taking part in the full series of Strictly? Or do they still ask you? I, I don't know whether I'm banned, but I think they <laughs> probably find it a bit difficult because yeah. I don't quite fit the stereotype. But yeah. I noticed this year the, the oldest contestant is about 40 years younger than me. So, <laughs> so, uh, so they might have there's been a shift. fitting me. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely been a shift there. But when you look back at being an MP, what's been the sort of the best thing about it? What's been the worst and what's been the sort of just the oddest thing Well, that's I think I've had three positive. I mean, my, my sort of <laughs> history has had sort of three peaks, really. One was the financial crisis. And I got quite a lot of exposure over that from getting some of the basic story right about the bubble in the economy. And I got a bestseller out of it and got some national reputation. Then the second was the coalition, which was controversial and often unpopular, but 
the feeling that we're in a, I was in a good government that actually good did good things and I, there's a long legacy of things I did at Biz which survive. And then the third was having got the party from not a great place to being seriously competitive local and European elections. So I've had three peaks and I'm going out at the, at the end of one of them. And then the bad things... Yeah, I mean, obviously the worst was losing in 2015. Yeah. It was particularly you know, going from cabinet minister to unemployed in a few hours. We all know tuition fees, and I was the secretary of state who had to manage all that. And what's been the sort of weirdest thing about being an MP? Well, I think the weirdest thing is you go from... It's a kind of bizarre thing that you go from very, very micro problems in your own constituency which you know quite reasonably people expect you to solve you know difficult problems in yeah. their personal lives or some local issue dealing to dealing with the world and, <laughs> and, and you know and I can go down to a question time and I'm asking something very parochial or something you know very mega and it's sort of alternating between the two, two worlds. I mean, it's in many ways very satisfying that you can, you know, it's a, quite a varied existence, but it can be quite bizarre. There's a film in the loop. It's a spin-off from in the thick of it. And the Secretary of State is sort of on the phone to the White House yeah. while also dealing with somebody who's got a complaint about a fence or something. Yes, well, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, neighbourhood disputes yeah. is a popular... Yeah. And it sort of chives that you've got the White House on one phone call and somebody yeah, that, with their that's, fence that's on the other. Yeah, that's exactly... You've got it. You've got it. Yeah. I've never quite made the White House. <laughs> so Vince Cable there. Our second episode this week will see me in Leeds finding out how Yorkshire is approaching the general election. That's it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode coming from Leeds. And if there's anyone you think we should speak to or any issues we should cover, email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.